Heavenly Father. Father, it's uh, always on my mind as I turn to your word that there are deep and important things here waiting for us. But the question is, will we hear you? For we know you can speak. We have no doubts, Father, that you intend to reveal yourself. That's the purpose in the fact that you gave us your word in the first place. The question, Father, is will we listen? Will we devote our time to it? Will we open our hearts to it? If we're presented with something that's different than what we've thought in the past, will will we be willing to rethink what we believe in accordance with your scripture? Will we take what we learn, Father, and apply it to ourselves, or will we always think of others when we hear the conviction that comes? Father, the question is, are we watching and listening and following you? And I pray, Father, that the scripture this this evening would be heard by each of us as it was intended to be heard. That is, in our hearts, spoken to us, speaking about things, Father, that are eternal, calling us to live according to them. Let us be a better witness, Father, by what we learn. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout your Bible, you'll find a contention of two issues. And those issues are faith and law. In both the Old and the New, you'll find these references to faith and at the same time other references to law. You'll find men and women called to faith in God's promise. And then you'll find at the same time those men and women called to accomplish works in keeping with their faith. And from the beginning, men have concluded various things about them. And in some cases, they've confused the two. The trouble that we see in Galatia in this letter is one example where a church has taken the concept of faith and the concept of law and confused them. And they've done it because false teachers have come into Galatia teaching that the way to eternal life was by first becoming a Jew and then after becoming a Jew, following the law. So they were preaching that circumcision and a lifestyle under the law was a requirement for eternal life. They had convinced believers in the church to take circumcision and to adopt that Jewish lifestyle and said it was a prerequisite in order to please God. But for these believers, that was a very destructive teaching. It robbed them of their liberty in Christ, first of all. And secondly, it sent a confusing message about the relationship between faith and works. And perhaps most troubling of all, this teaching gave opportunity for unbelievers to join the congregations by their works thinking works could save them, because that's the preaching, essentially, of these Judaizers. These Judaizers had proposed a recipe of works which encouraged unbelievers to think they found a path or a way into fellowship, while believers were giving up voluntarily their liberty in order to please these men who had come into the church. So as we studied last week, Paul has been working to set straight the teaching concerning faith and works and their relationship And he wrote to this church in order to do that. He began defending his authority in the first two chapters so that they could hear what he had to say and know it came from someone who had the basis to teach them. He taught them that he was an apostle with authority and a message that came directly from God, not from men. He answered to no man for his teaching. And in fact, he was even required at times to correct the apostles, the fellow apostles on their teaching. And then after he established that base of authority with his church or reestablished it, he then moved to refuting the teaching they had been exposed to from the false teachers. And that teaching from Paul centered on three areas of Christian doctrine, which we looked at last week, or I should say I introduced to you last week. The first was soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation. Paul then will move into Israelology, the doctrine of Israel and the law. 
And then lastly, ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church, the Gentile church. And the Judaizers had assaulted all three of these tenets of doctrine in their teaching. They taught salvation through works of law, which distorts soteriology. They taught that only Jews could be saved, and so a Gentile must become Jewish to be saved. That distorts Israelology. And then they taught that the church was not distinct from Israel, but in fact was to become a part of Israel in order to be a part of the family of God. And that distorts ecclesiology. So in response, Paul begins in chapter 3 with an appeal. And last week we looked at what he said at the outset. He said, your past experiences and the history of the covenants with Israel demonstrate that the teaching of the Judaizers was wrong. He demonstrated or he reminded the Galatians that they had all experienced many things by faith alone and without works of law. And those things agreed with the experience of Abraham, who was also declared righteous by faith alone. And then he finished at the end of last week with an examination of the covenant that resulted in the promise of salvation for Gentiles. That's the covenant offered to Abraham. So let's summarize everything we learned in the first part of chapter three last week. It was the Galatians faith that brought the church its first experiences with the Lord. It was faith that has been the basis of every saint's relationship going back to Abraham and before. And by that same faith, we all receive the blessings that are reserved for those who are the children of God. Therefore, the law of Moses plays no role whatsoever in justifying us or sanctifying us. What we begin with faith, we will finish by faith. And now we move into a deeper discussion of that second point of Israelology and particularly to the aspect of Israelology that's in view in this letter, which is the law, the law itself. And tonight we begin with a simple question. Paul poses in chapter three, verse 19, but it is a profound question and it will set up his entire defense of salvation by faith alone and Israel's proper role and the church's proper role. He asks in verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Why the law then, he says. If the law is not the basis of our salvation, and nor is it the basis of any blessing, because the blessing comes as a consequence of that same promised salvation, then Paul asks, Why did God give the law then in the first place if it doesn't serve those purposes? The answer to this question is important first for the Galatian church because it will address the Judaizers distortion of the law. But it's also an issue that's important for us today in the church because numerous church traditions today and over the centuries have overemphasized or distorted the role of the law for the believer. So the question is just as relevant for us today as it was when Paul wrote it. Why the law then? Or said another way, how should a Christian relate to the law, knowing that it was not given to save us, knowing that it is not the source of our blessing? Well, Paul explains that answer in chapter 3, verse 19, beginning with it was added. It was added. The word in Greek translated added means very specifically to place something alongside of something else, to place something alongside. So Paul says, that the law that came through Moses came in a covenant that was given to Israel 430 years after a covenant arrived to Abraham. And it came alongside that original covenant. It doesn't join it. It doesn't replace it. It doesn't attach to it in any way. Why couldn't the covenant of law replace the covenant given to Abraham? 
Well, Paul's already taught that no law makes a person righteous. Law can't do what the covenant of promise was intended to do. Laws in general cannot make you righteous. A law in any form, and I'm thinking even of the laws we follow today, laws today only serve to tell us when we are unrighteous. For example, there's a law that says we cannot murder. And so far, I have not murdered anyone. Can we say that because I have not murdered, that the law of murder has made me righteous? No, because first of all, righteousness is much more than simply the question of whether I murder or not. But the law itself does not even possess the power to stop me from murdering should I choose to do so. So it is powerless to create righteousness because it does not define righteousness, first of all, and it has no power to stop my bad behavior should I choose to do it. Its only purpose is to convict me of sin when I murder. In fact, the law's purpose doesn't even take effect until I murder. Until then, I have no relationship to it. It has no power on me. It has no relationship to me whatsoever. There are thousands of laws on the books that you don't even know about. They're not creating righteousness in your life, but they will certainly come to your attention should you break one. So as such, the law of God or any law only serves to create greater awareness of sin after it's been broken. So that's why Paul says the law was added because of transgressions or we would say sins. Man's sin necessitated the giving of God's law. And Paul teaches exactly the same thing at several different points in the New Testament. And, and of course, in particular in Romans, in Romans three, he says this three, 19 and 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Stop there for a moment. When he says it speaks to those who are under the law, he means those who are in violation of it. You're under law when you're in trouble. So whatever the law says, in other words, whatever its purpose, whatever its impact, it's going to be seen only by those who are under it, who are not in keeping with it, who have violated it. Well, that's everyone. And then Paul says in verse 20, because by the works of law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the chief purpose, Paul says, of God giving a law through a covenant and setting it alongside the covenant of grace that provides for salvation, the chief purpose of that extra added piece on the side was to make clear just how unrighteous we are. So the law did not come to assure us the blessings that God had earlier promised to Abraham. It came to point out our sin, and to a degree to moderate our sin, to help control it to the degree that it causes us to act properly in fear of the consequences. But even then, that's not righteousness. That's just lessening the degree of sin that we act on. But that's all the purpose of the law had. So, Paul says it was added. It was added because of transgressions. And then thirdly, he emphasizes its delivery came in a totally different way as well. He says the law was given to Israel by angels through a mediator. The law came as part of the old covenant. And that covenant was delivered to Israel at Mount Sinai through a very complex delivery mechanism that involved God working through angels first and then through a man, Moses, and then eventually that gets transferred down to the people at the base of the mountain. And Paul's emphasizing this difference, this fundamental difference between the old and the new covenant to make a point about their purposes. When a covenant has a mediator, it tells us that both parties are participating in keeping the agreement. 
There's someone moving between the two parties, negotiating the terms, so to speak, mediating. Both parties, therefore, have some terms to fulfill, some promises to keep, some penalties to pay if they fail to keep their end of the bargain. Now, in the case of the law, it came as part of the old covenant, and that covenant stipulated that Israel must do everything that's written in that law, or else they must suffer the penalty of death, which is the penalty for failing to keep the law. So it was death or perfect law-keeping. So this means that the covenant of law is a covenant that could only bring blessing if those under it kept it perfectly. If we break it, then like any covenant, the terms are forfeited, and the only expectation for the one who breaks it is death. So God gave it in a form that illustrated not only our sinfulness, but our need for some other mechanism to receive blessing, for this one cannot suffice given the structure of it, the fact that it put demands on us as a condition to receive blessing. But what do we know about the covenant that came earlier to Abraham, the one that predates this new one that comes alongside? Well, the covenant that came to him did not have a mediator. God alone set the terms. God alone made the promises. And Abraham was even put to sleep so that as it was given to him, it would be self-evident that he did nothing to agree to it. He had no part to play in it. It's not based on performance. It's based only on God's faithfulness to keep his promises. And we know God always does that. And so now that leads to the final difference that Paul lists between the law and the promise and why the law was given. He says the law sits alongside the covenant of Moses only for a time. Did you notice the word until? It was added until. Don't pass by that word too quickly. The law was until it wasn't. The word until here makes very clear that at a certain point in history, the covenant of law ceased. The law no longer sits alongside the covenant of promise. Once the promised seed came, it is no longer there anymore. Remember, Paul had said that the seed earlier refers to Christ. When it was spoken to Abraham in the singular, it was said as such so that we would understand it was not speaking of people in general, but of Christ specifically. So, Paul says, when the seed came, when Christ appeared, he brought an end to the law. So, the law came in a different way than the covenant of Abraham came. It exists for different purposes, and it exists only until the promised Messiah arrived. Verse 20, he says, now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, may it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He starts by emphasizing that the covenant of law required a mediator again, while the covenant of promise did not. So that reaffirms for us the law and the promise are two different covenants. They're distinct. They're not the same covenant. Well, now that begs a new question. Why did the law need to exist for any length of time alongside the old if it doesn't need to exist now? Does this mean that God made two ways available to salvation? Paul says not at all. For if a law in any form were capable of bringing us to righteousness, then God would have said so and he would have used that method. He would have told us explicitly the way to reach the father is through works of law. But he didn't say that, did he? Instead, he said, no one comes to the Father but through me, through Christ specifically, who is what? The seed of that promised Abrahamic covenant. And so Paul says in verse 22 that the law has shut everyone up 
in sin. And we read that earlier in chapter 3 of Romans 3.19. Everyone is convicted or shut up under this law. Paul says the law's capacity to bring conviction for sin was actually a part of God's plan for how he would save those who believed under the first covenant. God displays the whole world as guilty by the law. And then when he goes to grant them mercy, he gives them that mercy through an entirely different mechanism by a promise given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. So he holds up the manner of works and law as an option only in the sense that it demonstrates to us that it's no option at all. And he sets it alongside another covenant so that the answer to that problem is the other covenant by a trust in a promise rather than by the works of the flesh. One is working by contrast to demonstrate the power of the other. So how did the law accomplish that good purpose? Well, Paul concludes in chapter 3, 23 through 25. He says, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So before you and I came to faith in Christ, we were in custody, so to speak, under the law. Now, that doesn't mean we were a Jew living according to the law. For the Jew, there was a clear understanding of law and a clear understanding of sin. But even for the Gentile, it still shut us up. You have the conviction of your conscience, which every man or woman knows by nature, even without the specifics of law. But it goes deeper than that. The law is a barrier in the sense that it defined Israel as separate from the world. So you could say it shut Israel up into a people group who were separated from the world by that law, by that fence. But from the Gentiles' point of view, we were shut off from reaching God because for us, the law was a barrier to God. It was the distinction that kept Gentiles from knowing God because no Jew or Gentile would spend any time together. It walled Israel off as a nation away from all the rest of the world. So whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, the law dictated your relationship to God, either by holding you close so that you could see your sin or holding you afar so that you had no understanding of the things of God at a deep level. In either case, we were convicted of our sin, distant from God, and aware that we needed a solution. And that continued until the Messiah arrived, until it was made clear to us who Christ was. And during that waiting time, both individually and during that period of history, Paul says the law became a tutor to drive men to Christ. So in the original Greek, it says this, the law became a children's teacher about Christ. In other words, the law was a teacher for God's people, teaching of Christ so that we would find him. And by the faith that we have in Christ, we can then be declared righteous. But now that Christ has come in the flesh, we study him and his words in the New Testament. And we no longer have the need for the law alongside that new covenant to show us Christ. Now, I am not saying we no longer need to study the law. The law is still part of Scripture and therefore is still useful for instruction, as Paul himself says in Second Timothy. But its primary purpose in history has already been fulfilled in that now that Christ has come and been revealed, we don't need a tutor. Christ himself has spoken. We are encouraged to study Christ in the law, encouraged to see the patterns of Christ in the law, because all Scripture is good. But we are not expected to live according to that law now. Because Christ has appeared and his appearance is a greater testimony 
And that means attempts to keep the law no longer serve the purpose they once did, which was to tutor, to drive us to the Christ that eventually came. Let me illustrate what Paul's saying with an analogy. Let's imagine these two covenants are trains moving on tracks. And the covenant of promise spoken to Abraham, we will call that the grace train. And it's headed in a straight direction on its track. And the end of that track leads to the promised kingdom. The grace train has on it a countless number of cars. And in those cars are a countless number of seats. Those seats now are currently empty, waiting in reserve for the saints who will fill them according to the plan of God in time. And the train is moving steadily toward the kingdom. And then suddenly another train appears on another set of tracks and it's running next to this first train. And that second train is the train called the train of law. It's also moving, but it's going in the opposite direction. Its destination is the lake of fire. And unlike the grace train, the law train is already filled. Every seat is filled. As the people in the law train consider their surroundings and their destination, they become aware of their jeopardy. And they come to realize they're on the wrong train, headed in the wrong direction. But there's no way to steer the train. There's no way to change the train. The train is going to keep going where it's going because you can't turn trains. They stay on the track. If they stay on this track, though, there's no avoiding the outcome of where it's headed. Now, in their search for an answer, some on this train happen to notice out the window the other train moving in the other direction. And on the side of that train is written the name of the conductor. Jesus Christ. Immediately, they recognize this is their chance to escape. They decide to jump from one train to the other. They're not moving very fast. The jump isn't that hard. Uh, depending on how you're imagining this right now, you're like, "Ooh, this sounds dangerous. No, it's not that hard. They leave the train of law in order to join the train of grace. You can't be on both trains at the same time. Instantly, they start moving in the opposite direction. They turn and they head a new way. And now they're moving toward the kingdom. Now, at that point, the tracks diverge and the law train heads away and fades in the distance. Meanwhile, the grace train continues onward. Only now we notice that the train conductor has stuck his head outside the train and he's now yelling to the crowd on the ground around all aboard. And still more people then start running up to the train and jumping on it. And when we look out more closely, we notice that train conductor is Christ. So, in a sense, this is what Paul is describing. The law shut everyone up by its commandments, holding them to the fact that they could not meet those standards, making them aware of their jeopardy according to God's standards, and giving them motivation to look for a better way. And the law train is never a solution for sin. You can sit on that train as long as you want. You can become as practiced at it as you can, and the train keeps going in the direction it's headed. You're not moving the train into a new direction. You can't bend it to your will. And at the right time, for those who've been made aware of their situation, there is an encounter with the grace train. And they come to realize that faith in the promised Christ, in the promise that was given to Abraham, is their solution. And they recognize they must leave their reliance on dead works in order to accept the grace of God that is made available in Christ. When they receive that grace, they're immediately moving in a new direction. As we just said, they are headed toward the kingdom. And when the conductor of grace made himself known, when the train conductor comes, when Christ appeared and the call of the gospel then went out to the world, the law was no longer required at that point. My analogy breaks down very quickly if you think about it too deeply. But the point is 
There is no need anymore for the law to send us to the train. The conductor himself is there in public welcoming the world to himself. The gospel draws men to salvation now. We could use the law, certainly, to remind people of their sin. There's nothing wrong with that. It's scripture. But it's not necessary in the sense that we have better things we can say. We can speak to the man born of a virgin. We can speak to his sinless life. We can speak to his death and resurrection, which prove the claims of his messiahship. We can speak to the New Testament book of Acts and what happened in the church, etc., etc., etc. These things now become the manifestation of what the law prefigured. And so, as the writer of Hebrews says, once we have the real, we no longer need the shadow. We move to the greater things. So the Judaizers were teaching that these two trains, so to speak, worked together. That somehow God took the law train and hooked it up to the caboose of the grace train and they were sort of working together in some bizarre way. And they were headed in the same direction. And in fact, you had to be on both trains if you wanted to get where you were trying to go. I think I've run the analogy into the ground. So let's sort of move forward from there. But the point is, Paul has said these things are different for reasons that suit the ultimate purpose of getting you grace that God has offered. But when the realness of that grace was fulfilled in Christ's appearing, even that purpose of the law is diminished and set aside. Not to its exclusion from Scripture, but certainly to the exclusion for us to follow it, to keep it, to honor it through our life in that respect. We honor Christ now that he has appeared by following him in grace. Now look where he goes from there in verse 26. This is to the issue of now the sons of God and the doctrine of ecclesiology. He says in verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So he's now moving subtly into that third area of doctrine, into ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. He transitions out of the discussion of a relationship between law and grace and does so with a very comforting statement. He says, all believers are made sons or daughters of God, children, you would say, of God, through one thing and one thing only, faith in Christ Jesus. Our faith alone brings us into the family of God. And therefore, if we are children of God, sons of God, then we are also heirs of God, which means the promises of inheritance or of blessing spoken to Abraham become our promises too. We share in that inheritance. And I know if you're in a big family, you start to wonder, is mom and dad going to leave us enough so that everyone gets something of, of any real measure? Well, God has so much, you'll never have to worry about that. He can divide it infinitely and you still have more than you can imagine. That's the idea of an inheritance here is the glory of our place and role in the kingdom. Doesn't necessarily translate to so many toys in the in the garage or whatever. It means the full experience of life in that kingdom in whatever form it takes and all of the details of it will be an inheritance for us. Moreover, Paul says this new identity takes precedence over any identity we possess prior to faith. We are all baptized, Paul says, into the body of Christ by faith. We are all clothed into the righteousness of Christ. And in that reference to clothing, he's actually drawing on a Greek cultural issue. In Greek society, a young person, when they were recognized as an adult, they would then be allowed to wear the toga that we now associate so much with Greek society. Until you were an adult, you couldn't wear a toga. So Paul is using that analogy in terms of maturity. He says, we have now been clothed. We've grown up into our fullness in Christ. We wear the the righteousness of Christ. 
And he says that clothing covers over any distinctions for who we were in the past. We all look the same now. Whether we were Jew or Gentile, whether we were enslaved or free men, whether we were a man or a woman, we all now have the same identity when it comes to the issue of faith in Jesus Christ. This is in contrast to what the Judaizers were teaching. By how well you conform to the law, you demonstrated to greater degrees that you were close to God. This is the pharisaical notion that piousness is a reflection of effort at keeping rules and it reflects well on you if you do well at that process. And God dispenses more of his favor on those who do that. It creates a sense of the haves and the have nots within the family of God by virtue of who's doing more stuff. This is where it gets dangerous, I think, in the church, where we may not have dropped from our understanding of salvation through grace by faith, but we may act as if it's not true by how we assign value to certain people who live a more pious lifestyle. The legalistic traditions that turn back to the law and try to apply it to Christian life. It becomes a really powerful way to create distinction, which feeds our pride. Paul says none of that's true. If we all belong to Christ in the same way, by faith, according to a promise that's not dependent on our works, then by definition, we're all brothers and sisters in the same family without precedence, without priority. Therefore, we are all descendants and not just descendants of our family in Abraham's case of the promise, but we're descendants of Christ. Literally, we're born again into his to his line. Remember, Jesus himself physically descended, at least in human terms, from Abraham. So in a sense, he was the descendant of Abraham. We join the family of Abraham by faith. We're a fellow brother or sister in that same family. We're in Christ's family. Distinctions no longer make any difference. So if we join Christ's family by faith, we likewise join Abraham's family. We likewise become a descendant of Abraham of the seed through the seed, and we receive the promised blessings. Think of it as you being adopted, as Paul says elsewhere, we're adopted into the family of God. Think of yourself as being adopted into this very rich, powerful family. You didn't do anything to earn it, you just received it. Now, before we go any further, let's understand what Paul's saying here and what he's not saying, because there is some confusion on this point. Paul is saying that believers no longer need to be concerned with issues of Jewishness versus Gentile or other issues of culture or gender when it comes to the question of salvation or when it comes to the question of pleasing God or our priority in the faith. Those distinctions only made sense in the first place because God established them through law in the case of the Jew and the Gentile. And he did so because he wanted to work through Israel to the exclusion of the Gentiles so that he could create a people from within which he then could fulfill all his promises. Now he's erased those differences for the time of the church so that he can then fulfill the other side of the promise, which was through your seed, all nations will be blessed. But once Christ came and the law had met its purpose and all that goes away, now we lose those distinctions. But Paul is not saying we no longer observe the practical differences that exist on these levels. For example, both Jews and Gentiles still exist in the church. Both men and women still exist in the church. The day I became a believer, I didn't stop being a man. The day a Jew becomes a believer, he doesn't stop being Jewish. They just no longer have any distinction associated with that as far as the church is concerned. In some cultures, we still have slavery. If you were a slave and you became a believer today, there's no automatic release from slavery because of that, although it certainly would be a good thing if it could happen. 
And in Paul's day, slavery existed. And in Paul's day, as you know from the book of Philemon, men who were slaves, Paul actually said at times, it's better for your witness you go back and submit to your master than it is that you get your freedom. So slavery and freedom, Gentileness, Jewishness, male and female, they're not absolutes of value that trump salvation or trump our witness. They're practical issues of everyday life that we need to understand and accommodate. And scripture puts some structure around them, but they don't put us into positions of honor or preference in terms of salvation or in terms of our relationship with Christ. So the moment a man or a woman comes to faith, the moment a Gentile or a Jew or a slave or a free man comes to faith, some distinctions are gone. Other natural practical differences remain. Now, as we enter into chapter 4, Paul is still talking about being sons of God by faith. And we're not going to go deep into this chapter tonight, just at the very beginning. But he begins to raise the question now of, given what I've taught, why is the church submitting to the law unnecessarily in this case? He begins to raise the question of why are they doing this? Verse 1, he says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So what Paul is now explaining is that our entrance into salvation and away from the law, our jumping of these trains, so to speak, he compares that to someone who would be a child in a household. He said in the early stages of life, a child has a status that's barely better than a slave or a servant in the family. He can't make his own decisions. He can't direct his own affairs, but he's still an heir. And in the date that's set for the future, he comes into things he has promised as an heir. But while he awaits for that day, he has a master over him. And that master places that child under the care and the instruction of a guardian or a manager. And that child is instructed by those people. They're disciplined by those people. They're restrained by those people like a nanny, a guardian in this case. But at the date set by the father, the child is set free. He is declared to be an adult. He's set free from those guardians. Now he is set free from those restraints. Likewise, we were under the restraints and the conviction and the instruction of God's law or the general conviction of our conscience. And those things act to preserve us to a degree while we await the time appointed by the father. So notice Paul says in verse 4 that the time of living under the custodianship of the law existed only until Christ. The law was no longer our tutor. Now, this is working on two levels again. On the individual, this is speaking of the moment I come to know of Christ as my Savior. But speaking of it in a larger sense, dispensationally, Paul is saying that the Messiah was revealed to put an end to the dispensation of law. If you were a saint in Israel... You still had to keep the law until Christ came. Why? Because the law was literally the guardian of Israel until the arrival of the Messiah. Individually, you and I, we individually still live in a similar sense under the law in that our conviction, our awareness of our own unrighteousness, our failure to have any other method to reach God, those things are continually a part of our hearts until we are released from that guardian and we are made aware of our opportunity to be an heir. So that now it's a period of grace. This is the idea of the train moving off into the distance. We no longer now have the law working in the world to
to keep people as custodians in the way it did with Israel, it is faded. And its place is the gospel being spoken to all. So now Paul makes the application of the church in verse 7. He says, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So if the Judaizers are putting pressure on believers to become Jewish or lose what's promised, Paul says that's not even possible. The blessings came as a result of a covenant delivered by a promise. If they are the result of a promise, then you don't do anything to receive them. You just have to join the family that's going to receive that inheritance. The trick is to change your identity. The trick isn't to earn the inheritance of some other family. The trick is to become part of that family so that then you can have what that inheritance offers. An inheritance was made possible to the family of Abraham through a promise. And we, by faith in that promise, are allowed to join that family, to be clothed in Christ, to have our our life and our identity restarted in that family. And now we share in that inheritance into the blessings that came from that promise. The works of law were simply an illustration that we couldn't work long and hard enough to earn the kind of inheritance that is offered only through that promise. Having joined the family, having seen the master appear in the flesh, we no longer have need for the tutor. So that's where we end. Next week we'll look at Paul's questioning of the church for their willingness to return to such things. And he raises the question of what that means about their claimed faith should they pick up again a life of works under the law. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for a night tonight when we can think about things of this sort. Reminder, Father, that we have a great inheritance that you've offered us because of faith and because you have been willing to offer it through mercy and a promise given to Abraham. Father, as we speak to those we may encounter that don't know you and don't know the truth, I pray that you give us words to remind them of who they are before Christ according to the, or who they are before uh, the Lord in light of their sin according to the law. And then you would also give us a, w- a way, Father, to lead them like a tutor would lead a child to the truth of grace. Let our life, Father, testify to that perhaps even more loudly than our words. And if it be your will, Father, bring others to join us here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.